Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. We need a future in which nobody is for want of food, shelter, transportation, clothing for their kids. And we have it within our reach to achieve that future if we're determined and make the choice that that's the future that we want. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. <laughs> professor Harvey K., my brother. He is the professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. And every week on this show, every Tuesday on your KC Morning Show, we take back America, my friends, my comrades. We are reclaiming that radical history of America. We've got it, always had it, that progressive spirit that Professor K every week says we got to find, we got to find the folks who are going to ignite that spirit within us. My brother, how are you? I'm feeling good. I'm very, very busy. The world around us may not be going the way we want it to. I mean, needless to say, I'm devastated that Nina Turner lost in Cleveland. I am even more devastated at the horrific thought of what might ensue if the Supreme Court does terminate Roe v. Wade. But I am not going to allow those things to stop me from pursuing what needs to be pursued, having to do especially with trying to rally people behind the Economic Bill of Rights. I think the more people will pay attention and contact their own candidates, especially progressive candidates, and get them to go online and read about the, the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights that Alan Minsky and I have created, and then tweet it, post it on Facebook, tell your candidates, again, as I was saying, to support this. I mean, it was a terrible thing that Nina lost. I had great confidence that she was going to take that Economic Bill of Rights into the Progressive Caucus in, in Washington, in the House. Now, I'm worried about that, but we still have other candidates who are out there who are good, young, rising candidates that need to be supported. So how am I doing? In spite of what I expected, and my voice is a little cracking because I'm doing a lot of talking these days, <laughs> I'm not going to be daunted. I'm not going to be stopped. I'm not going to be obstructed. And you and I, you and I have a lot to do. And I love that you framed it like that because, yeah, you know, we're not going to take our ball and go home. No. You know what we did? Actually, we went and got some backup. We got some backup on this show, Professor Harvey K. And I, I actually start every morning with him, not just once a week. We have Joe Sandberg on your KC Morning Show. And I'm going to tell you why I start my morning with Joe Sandberg. In fact, I got a feeling that a lot of you listening right now, you may also be inadvertently starting your mornings with Joe Sandberg because you've probably seen these tweets. Joe is an anti-poverty advocate. He is the chair and champion of so many organizations that we're going to hopefully touch on as many as we can tonight. One of which the Living Wage Act of 2022 happening in California. Joe Sandberg, let me welcome you to the KC Morning Show. Thanks for having me. 
My friend, I say I start my mornings with you because you, every morning, let us know the updates on the minimum wage. Now, currently, federal minimum wage sits at $7.25. But every morning, Joe, you let us know what it should be, what we are owed, what we're due. What is that number, my friend? Well, if the minimum wage had increased at the rate of productivity since 1960, it would be over $25 right now. And when I started doing this tweet every single day, which was about two years ago, it would have been $22.50. But productivity, which is really a measure of the value that workers create, has continued to grow. But the federal minimum wage has been stuck in place at $7.25. And I think what's terribly frustrating is is how we're lied to and how our parents have been lied to and how our grandparents have been lied to by generation after generation of politicians that have told us if we elect them, that they'll go and fight for workers. But then they get to DC and they tell us, oh, it's too hard. And it's just, it's diabolical. What's too hard is working for the minimum wage and trying to support yourself and your family. And one of these days, I hope that we'll all get wise to the fact that we have to send different kinds of politicians to D.C. who are going to be true to the words that they speak when they run for office. You know, that's one of the things that I just can't fathom. You know, how can an entire party and a faction of folks say that you don't deserve a raise? I mean, how can they themselves look at themselves in the mirror and say that they don't deserve a raise? Are you, sir or madam, not good at your own job? that you don't think the rest of us deserve a raise? Joe, how is it that we have bought into this? We're here because the American political system is corrupt. The difference between American corruption and corruption in developing countries is just that our corruption is institutionalized and it's encoded in our campaign finance laws. You know, because there's unlimited money that's allowed in politics, we have a system now where it's $1, one vote instead of one person, one vote. And therefore you have this revolving door of people who go in to government and back to business and big tycoons and monopolies that buy outcomes in DC and around state capitals in the country. And so it's really as simple as that. We have a corrupt society and a corrupt politics. Professor K, you're hearing what Joe is saying there. As we like to reclaim the radical history, he just laid out the context of where we are in this moment. Does it remind you of any other moment in history that we can use to maybe propel this moment forward like Joe is trying to do? Initiatives and things like that. Well, the, the control by money right now over politics is essentially unprecedented. And it really didn't take off tremendously and lead to this moment until really mid to late 1970s. I mean, money always sort of governed politics in some way. Property, originally landed property, governed politics. But we really have seen these last 45 years, this assault on working people carried out by the richest folks who became all the more rich. I mean, let's face it, we're on the verge of talking about trillionaires if the way things are going. So, Joe, you have been a champion of the Living Wage Act of 2022. Again, one of the reasons why I love hanging out with Professor K every week is that, yeah, we dive into the history book, but we're trying to make this relevant for the here and now. That's the whole point. And Joe, you and the fighters and activists have put together this initiative. Can you break it down for us? The Living Wage Act of 2022 is a ballot proposition that's going to appear on the uh, November ballot in California, and it will raise the California minimum wage to $18. Let's break down what that means and how significant it is. There are about 5 million Californians who will get a raise, and it will be a raise of about $6,240 a year. That means overall, 
this ballot proposition is going to put over $30 billion in the pockets of working people every year. And one of the reflections I've had is, well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to lead here. There are so many other people could have done this and they didn't. I don't think there's anything special about what I'm doing. I'm a citizen who cares a lot, who has firsthand experience with poverty. My mom raised me by herself and I've been fortunate to build businesses that have given me the resources to do this kind of work. But there's a lot of other Californians who have these resources. There's elected officials in California who could harness these resources. And what discourages me is why am I the only one with these resources who's acting? You know, it's going to cost us about $11 million to put this ballot proposition on the ballot. Now, that's obviously a lot of money. But when you think about the impact that we're going to put 30 billion with a B dollars in the pockets of low-income people every year. And then you think about the ability of politicians to raise money. You think about the tens of billions of dollars that politicians raise every decade toward television advertising. And then you look at the impact we can have here with $11 million, which again is a lot of money, but lots of politicians raise every election cycle. It just begs the question of why aren't more people doing this? Why is this falling on the shoulders of Joe Sandberg, a private citizen, when we have all of these politicians who are elected, what in God's name are they doing with their time? I would never want to speak for you, Joe, but I also feel like you're asking another question here, and maybe it's something that we need to be asking more of. Why aren't more rich folks using their platforms to do things like what you're doing? I mean, I have been on the ground. I've tried to highlight the stories of not just the last two years, but, you know, life has been hard for a long time, even pre-COVID. And so, like, I know the energy of those who are making it work in the trenches, the activists in the streets, but I also know that realistically, those same folks aren't in the rooms where it happens, or they don't have the influence to be in those rooms, folks with the means can find themselves in those rooms easier than maybe me and Harvey. I don't think you're saying it, but maybe you're saying it. Why aren't more rich folks getting in the game? Well, I'm saying two things. I'm saying, why aren't more rich people putting their money to work to help workers? And I'm saying, why aren't more politicians who are incredibly skillful at raising money, raising money for things that actually help people? There are dozens, if not hundreds of members of Congress who raise $10 million or more every campaign cycle for television advertising. Why hasn't a single one of them thought, hey, the way I'm going to campaign this time is instead of raising money for television advertising that no one actually wants to see, I'm going to raise money to put ballot measures on ballots to go and raise minimum wage for people to actually help people. It's a commentary on how broken our culture is. Politics is, I believe, just a reflection of culture. And our culture is so obsessed with self and celebrity. And when our politics have worked the best, have been at times when we are more focused on the other. For me, my passion for social democracy comes from my belief in God. I believe we are all created with meaning and intent to do everything we can in our lives to help others. And that ties to this notion of what I call the necessity of the other, that we need each other to complete ourselves. But we've been told this lie in modern culture that we are complete without our connection to others. I just fundamentally disagree with that. I think that we are relational beings and we are only as complete as our weakest sibling. And right now there are so many siblings in America who are weak 
And this extends all the way to the richest person cannot be complete when there's even one single person who's living in poverty. But this isn't the mentality that infuses our culture anymore. The mentality in our culture is of the selfie and of the service of self. I am now obsessed with that phrase, the necessity of others. It has to be a mindset. It has to be an ideology. I'm just thinking now to the stimulus we got. Imagine if that stimulus check was, you know, let's just say it was for $2,020. You know, I know it is trivial. It doesn't mean much, but there's that sense of we're in it together. Those early days of when we were all applauding those essential workers. Harvey, break that down. The necessity of others. I love that. In its own way, it's not unlike uh, what Bernie was saying, not me, us, which had two dimensions to it at the least. One was, are you prepared to fight? Are you prepared to help? Are you prepared to aid? Are you prepared to ally yourself with others who you don't even know in pursuit of a moral and good political end? That's first. And then the other one is that you can't accomplish anything merely by yourself. Now, here we're talking about things you can accomplish if you've accumulated some money to do it, but it's also the case you don't do it by yourself. So that's a question of solidarity. And that's the kind of things I think of when I hear Joe say that. Harvey's really wise to note this notion that you don't accomplish anything by yourself, no matter how much power you have or how much money you have. If you try and do anything by yourself, you might experience temporary success, but you'll never create enduring change definitionally because one person with one amount of power, one amount of money, it's, it's fleeting. It's only when you build long big and multi-generational coalitions that you can create change that outlasts you. I'll give you an example. Before I got involved with raising the minimum wage, back in 2015, I launched a coalition to get California to create an earned income tax credit at the state level, which is a cash back tax credit for low-income workers. And a lot of people along the way have told me, you know, Joe, you should promote your role on that more. And what I did instead is I built this big coalition of lots of elected officials and lots of community organizers and lots of nonprofits. And I wanted hundreds and hundreds of people to feel that they were the parent of this program. And I go around the state now and the EITC, which is called Cal EITC for me, so many people know it, but a lot of people don't know that I started it. And that's exactly what I intended, because if the design was to make sure everyone knew it was mine, that would mean that I wouldn't have spawned hundreds and hundreds of other parents of it who would feel their own sense of ownership and agency in continuing it. A testament to, I think, Harvey's point is a core conviction of mine, and I think something that differentiates me from other folks who have moved from the private sector to the public sector is I don't do anything by myself because I don't think you can get anything done by yourself no matter how much money you have or how much power you have. I think at the heart of, I think a lot of your argument is just reclaiming our our power. It's our collective power. We are so much better together. I know Hillary may have ruined that, but there is a meat to it. We are so much better together. Right now, I'll check my phone. I don't think there's any updates, but President Biden hasn't canceled student loans and he promised that he would on the campaign trail. You know, that's power. You've been a champion of canceling student loan debt. And when we means test things, we're fighting each other when we can be getting better together. Your thoughts, Joe? Well, the problem with some of these monikers is they get diluted into meaninglessness. Yes, we need each other. Yes, our sense of meaning and purpose and completion of this people is dependent on how we serve others. But in a political context, I think it gets used to diffuse from 
holding accountable those who are supposed to be serving us. We should be asking what the government is doing for us. I know that the historic call to ask what you can do for your country has certain context and significance. But where I think we are now is that 80% of Americans who are paycheck to paycheck Americans, they've done plenty for their country and their government. I think it's about time that their government, their country does something for them. We have several generations now that I think have been totally screwed by their government and by their country who have been lied to into taking out student debt on the promise of good paying jobs and found only minimum wage jobs while they're burdened by tens of thousands of dollars of debt and lied to when they were told that if they work hard and play by the rules, they can get ahead and they're working two or three jobs and they still can't get ahead. Who've been lied to that we even have a democracy when in fact we have an oligarchy. So my hesitation on embracing too much these these Twitter hashtags that Hillary loved with like the together stuff is if you're a politician, it shouldn't be about you. It should be about what you are going to do for the voters. I thought Hillary's hashtag told everything we needed to know about why her campaign failed. Remember her hashtag, I'm with her. No, no, no. It should never be about the voter being with a politician. It should have been, she's with us or she's for us. But of course we know it was, I'm with her. And that was, I think, emblematic of a a campaign that was about self, not about the other. Don't trust the politician who promises to fight for you. Trust the politician who inspires the fight in you. And I think that, and I stand by that because it really is the case that as much as the politicians should be asking you what they can do for you, it's also the case that too often that will lead them to believe that they're somehow doing you a favor and they're not doing you a favor. Joe, I'm curious because you have been someone now who's been, you know, kind of thrusted in that position. It's not about you, but, you know, someone does have to hold the microphone on occasion. Let's just be real. What are the words that you say? Is it just the the numbers and figures that you're making on those tweets? You know, the in-your-faceness of it all. What are the words you're putting together as you help to ignite that fire within us that Harvey's talking about? I believe we are afflicted by this terrible power imbalance in society, culture, and politics. And the people that are trying to oppress us are bullies. We have a bully problem. We have a bully problem in schools, in culture, online, and in politics. What bullies do is pick on those who they perceive to be weaker. And the number one thing you have to do when you confront a bully is you have to punch the bully in the nose, figuratively, obviously. And one of the things I'm trying to inspire when Harvey talks about inspire the fight in you is that we need to stand up to the bullies in our politics. We shouldn't accept what they tell us things have to be, we should figuratively and politically punch back and tell them what will be by the force of our organizing and our voting. And so the assertiveness in my messaging is intended to inspire the conviction that we need to stand up to the bullies in our politics, take abortion. This is an example of people trying to take away the power of women, take the gender wage gap, They don't want women to earn as much as men because if women earned as much as men, women would have more power. Wherever you look and you think about groups that have less than, what the bullies in politics are trying to do is prevent those groups from having a power balance because the only way they can retain their dominance of us is to maintain this power imbalance. And so wherever you see injustice, think about this common thread of power imbalance And then think about how we rectify that power imbalance by standing up to those bullies and advocating and then winning the policies that balance out 
that power. And you can insert that logic with, I mean, housing, democracy itself. You know, Harvey, you know, we're hearing this together. You've been, you know, a proponent of the 21st century economic bill of rights. Hell, you helped write the thing. I feel like what Joe is, is saying here, there's simpatico. There's, you know, and that's what I think makes that 21st century economic bill of rights so great is that those what can come across as niche identity politics, if you want to call it that, it's actually a part of a bigger umbrella that would affect so many more of us as we talk about coalition building. The Democrats have no story. They have no vision. And the way in which you pursue that is not simply with an agenda. You pursue it by way of the America that you hope to create in solidarity with others. And that's what the Economic Bill of Rights is about. When Joe speaks in moral terms as he does, I know that he understands that. And I have little doubt that I have little doubt that he may well be in the vanguard of what could become a really serious social democratic movement, first in California and then across the country. Joe, as we wrap up here, you know, you were someone who was trying to push a social democratic movement in California. So I'm here in Kansas City, Missouri. You know, those chain emails would say you're some kind of socialist hippie liberal. But I also know that you're rooting your beliefs in in your religion, in God. You know, I know that plays in Missouri big time. I know that I need the Living Wage Act of 2022 to work in California because that's good for me in Missouri. It's good for all of us here in the country. How do we coalition build, my friend? I think embracing the language of faith is really important. I um, I think that we've lost the power of faith because we've, as people of faith, too often let a small number of extremists take over our faith with exclusion and judgment instead of messages of love and service. If you look at all of the Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and then you think about the other major belief systems, Hinduism, Buddhism, they all converge to a similar truth, which is that we are all part of something bigger and mystical that we can't totally explain solely through logic because our logical minds are finite and we are part of something that's infinite. And inside of us, we're drawn to helping others and trying to perfect creation. And then each of our theologies can give us different words to describe. But those words all come back to the same idea that we should love each other and help each other and be tender with each other and take responsibility for healing the world. You know, the New Testament is almost entirely about helping people who are poor. And so I think if we can go back to sincere, authentic, and loving faith, there's a powerful dialogue there that we can reignite that isn't about judgment or exclusion or saying this belief system is better than that belief system, but recognizing that there's something transcendental in all of us, that we are called to something bigger than ourselves, and that there's always this spirituality infused in our nation's history. And it's okay to acknowledge that as long as we understand it's supposed to be a spirituality that isn't confined to one belief system, but rather is an organizing logic around a shared destiny. Well, I'm a firm believer that love is radical. It's active. I don't think it's a pushover at all. And at the end of the day, I think love is progressive. And I love this conversation. Harvey K., is this still our rendezvous with destiny? Well, I happen to be writing a, a talk that I'm giving this Friday to 100, 150 retired school teachers who belong to the Wisconsin Education Association. I am not a member of that. I belong to the American Federation of Teachers. But they want me to talk to the question of how can we save democracy? And I'm going to tell them the way we can save democracy is we 
in many ways, act in solidarity with our greatest generations past, whether it was the time of the revolution, the time of the Civil War, or the time of the Great Depression and World War II. And what was it about them? Well, those folks realized, not as effectively as they should have, we know the sins, the faults and the failings, but it was the case that it took a hell of a lot of solidarity and a vision, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in order to win the revolution, to secure the union, to defeat the depression and fascism. So, I mean, basically speaking, whether we're talking in moral terms about solidarities or political economic terms about solidarities, the fact is that poverty costs us. It costs us. There is no advantage in leaving people without. You know, Thomas Paine asked the question back in the 1790s, I guess, how can rich people enjoy their own riches if they have to see poverty. How is that possible? Okay. And here's a guy not known for his spirituality, but he was decidedly moral. Those are the kind of questions that occurred to him. And his idea was, well, you have to combat poverty. He wrote the pamphlet Agrarian Justice, and it led to eventually to Social Security. I don't think people realize, for example, that Social Security, which we know the Republicans are prepared to axe as soon as they get a chance to, that Social Security is the one thing that stands between poverty and survival for so many people over the age of 65. And similarly, we should be addressing childhood poverty. I don't understand why we don't have, at least as a start, Medicare for all kids that we can move on. These are political questions and they're moral questions at the same time. And it's imperative that we recognize that we are all going to prosper when we can literally abolish poverty. Joe Sandberg, my friend, I I have so enjoyed this. Happy to do it. I enjoyed it too. You're a busy, busy man, but we come back on when you got some time. Absolutely. Joe, where can folks go to find you? Your handle, the floor is absolutely yours, my friend. Take it away. Well, come follow me on Twitter. It's Joseph N. Sandberg. And then you can go to livingwageact.com. Sign up for the newsletter about the Living Wage Act of 2022. If you don't live in California, you should follow Joe Sandberg. And when you see his tweets, you retweet them, not only because of the tragedy of the minimum wage across the country, but also in the possibility that California can set an example to the rest of the nation after the success of that ballot initiative in November. Joe Sandberg, my friend, my brother, in solidarity, thank you so much for being here, and I cannot wait to chat soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm from the 60s, the time of Louie Louie and little Latin Loopy Lou. And I know we can't have those times back again, but we can have parties like there were then. We need more parties.
Officers, I mean, these officers, man, they weren't billow. I mean, they were so unsettled. 